do it. I'm I you know what I've been re-listening to everything and uh I am jealous of how low your voice is and right now that you have a cold or whatever, it's gotten even lower and I just think that it's kind of bullshit because <laughs> like, Well, in my defense, I'm awesome. <laughs> November 11th of 2022, we published Paradise Lost number seven. Hmm. And that means that we are on Paradise Lost number eight. And I'm sitting here with Jim and Annalisa Myers. Now, in the interim between November of 2022 and July, I lost my mom to cancer and Jim lost his mom to cancer. And that is a big part of the reason why it's been such a long hiatus. Yeah, I had the advantage of uh, a very, very prolonged illness. And while we knew, everyone knew that Nancy's health was not good. It was her, three months. Her yeah. diagnosis, between diagnosis and passing was three months. That is the reason that it has been so long. And it's part of the reason why I've been publishing sermons on the podcast. When I say part of the reason, meaning there were sermons that I wanted to publish to the podcast before uh, I forgot about them or it just seemed right. I needed to hear the sermons, if you follow me, with my mom's passing. Mm. So specifically, it was Bitterness and Psalms 23. And it seems just a little jarring after all of this time to jump right back in. But I, I am determined to finish this for posterity. I preface to Paradise Lost. And I want to remind our listeners that the reason that I have picked this important book is because this is part of the curriculum for small group on small groups. Although I normally pick a couple of chapters, which when we come to them, I'll let you know when those are. But every time that I've done this, where they've only read two or three chapters in the book, people have said, I wish we had run, read the whole thing. That was a lot of feedback that I got was, I wish we'd read all of that C.S. Lewis book because it was so very beautiful. That is part of the reason, dear listener, why we are spending so much time on a book about... A um, book. (laughs) (laughs) We are now on chapter eight of A Preface to Paradise Lost by C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to ask Annalisa to read the poetry. Thank you. One hand, a mathematique crystal sways, which gathering in one line a thousand rays... From her bright eyes, confusion burns to death, and all estates of men distinguisheth. By it, morality and comeliness, themselves in all their sightly figures dress. Her other hand, a laurel rod applies to beat back barbarism and avarice. That followed eating earth and excrement and human limbs and would make proud assent to seats of gods were ceremony slain. Chapman, Hero, and Leander. All right, so that poem, I'm, I'm also going to read it. But what I would like you, uh, dear listener, all 12 of you, to know is that the individual that she is from her bright eyes, that is the individual that this uh, poem is eulogizing, if you like. The muse here is the goddess Ceremony. I'm going to say that again. The muse of this poem 
is the goddess Ceremony. Capital C. And Mathematique Cristal is also capitalized. So I'm going to read it again. And morality and comeliness are each, as well as confusion, are treated in caps, with the rest of it being italicized, as if they are personalities. So I will try this again. And barbarism and oh. avarice. Oh, yes. And we mustn't forget the villains. Barbarism and avarice. All right. They also are personalities in this poem. One hand, a mathematique crystal sways, which, gathering in one line a thousand rays from her, that is, those of the goddess ceremony, from her bright eyes, confusion burns to death, and all estates of men distinguisheth. By it, morality and comeliness themselves in all their slightly figures dress her other hand a laurel rod applies to beat back barbarism and avarice that followed eating earth and excrement and human limbs and would make proud assent to seats of gods were ceremony slain. All right, Jim, Annalisa, I want to talk about that poem just for a second. Lewis doesn't lead with this on accident. The crass description of barbarism and avarice's activities beautifully repulsive, right? Mm -hmm. Eating earth and excrement and human limbs and would make proud ascent to seats of gods. Were ceremony slain. Ceremony holds them at bay. Mm. Morality and comeliness. How do you take the meaning of comeliness there? Loveliness. Mm. Yeah, it's like, when I see when I when I read comeliness, it strikes me as correct me if I'm wrong, please. Comeliness and, and homeliness, right? Mm. Homeliness is it's an inelegant familiarity that is not necessarily off-putting, but is not pretty. Mm. And I take comeliness to be a familiarity that is pretty, so a homely man doesn't necessarily make him ugly. He might have disheveled hair. Yeah, or, and, and a comeliness doesn't necessarily make them a stunning beauty, austere. There's nothing austere about comeliness. Mm -hmm. So so there's like this, this um, familial mm -hmm. element that I'm picking up on with that, with that phraseology. Would you care to elaborate on, on, on your impressions along that? As well as morality. I don't disagree. I would want to brush up on my definitions and etymologies of that mm, word, but mm. my but my impression, like what I, where I think of hearing it, is the maiden down by the river, uh, drawing a bucket of water, not mm. the princess in the castle. When you talk about comeliness, is where I've heard yeah. it. I'm wondering if 
innocence is part of comeliness. I don't know that it's inherent to the to the usage of the word, but I think of innocent innocent loveliness. Mm. Something that is protected and treasured. Mm-hmm. It's a private park, not a public one. Yes. Yeah. No mm. pomp, no circumstance. Mm-hmm. Which is going to be the opposite of barbarism, which is want it now, like rip it open, give it to me. Pillaging. Pillaging. Yeah. Raping. You know, unclothing. Yeah. The immodesty, the the outsider, the, the crass, the crude, the simple. The lust. Mm. Yeah. The violent lust. Violent, immediate, I demand. I believe I am right in saying that the reaction of many readers to the chapter I have just finished might be expressed in the following words, quote, You have described exactly what we do not call poetry. This manipulation of the audience, which you attribute to Milton, is just what distinguishes the vile art of rhetorician and the propagandist from the disinterested activity of the poet. This evocation of stock responses to conventional situations, which you choose to call archetypical patterns, is the very mark of the cheap writer. This calculated pomp and grandiosity is the sheer antithesis of true poetic sincerity, a miserable attempt to appear high by mounting on stilts. In brief, we always suspected that Milton was bogus, and you have confirmed our suspicion. Habeas confintum raum, end quote. I hardly expect to convert many of those who take such a view. But it would be a mistake not to make clear that the difference between us is essential. If these are my errors, they are not errors into which I have fallen inadvertently, but the very lie in the soul. If these are my truths, then they are basic truths, the loss of which means imaginative death. First, as to manipulation, manipulation being capitalized. (laughs) I do not think, and no great civilization has ever thought, that the art of the rhetorician is necessarily vile. It is itself noble, though, of course, like most art, it can be wickedly used. I do not think that the rhetoric and poetry are distinguished by manipulation of an audience in the one and in the other a pure self-expression regarded as its own end and indifferent to any audience. Both these arts, in my opinion, definitely aim at doing something to an audience, and both do it by using language to control what already exists in our minds. The differentia of rhetoric is that it wishes to produce in our minds some practical resolve to condemn Warren Hastings or to declare war on Philip. Screw Philip. Yeah. And it does this by calling the passions to the aid of reason. Mm. It is honestly practiced when the orator honestly believes that the thing which he calls the passion, passions to support is reason. Yeah. And usefully practiced when this belief of his is in fact correct. It is mischievously practiced when that which he summons the passions to aid is in fact unreason. And dishonestly practiced when he himself knows that it is unreason. Preach. 
The proper use is lawful and necessary because, as Aristotle points out, intellect of itself moves nothing. The transition from thinking to doing in nearly all men at nearly all moments needs to be assisted by appropriate states of feeling. Because the end of rhetoric is in the world of action. The objects it deals with appear foreshortened and much of their reality is omitted. Thus, the ambitions of Philip are shown only in so far as they are wicked and dangerous. Because indignation and moderate fear are emotional channels through which men pass from thinking to doing. Now, good poetry if it is dealt with the ambitions of Philip, would give you something much more like their total reality. What it felt like to be Philip, and Philip's place in the whole system of things. It's Philip would, in fact, be more concrete than the Philip of the orator. That is because poetry aims at producing something more like vision than it's like action. But vision, in this sense, includes passions. Certain things, if not seen as lovely or detestable, are not being correctly seen at all. When we try to rouse someone's hate of toothache in order to persuade him to ring up the dentist, this is rhetoric. But even if there were no practical issue involved, even if we only wanted to convey the reality of toothache for some speculative purpose or for its own sake, we should still have failed if the idea produced in our friend's mind did not include the hatefulness of toothache. Toothache, with that left out, is an abstraction. Hence, the awakening and molding of the reader's or hearer's emotions is a necessary element in that vision of concrete reality which poetry hopes to produce. Very roughly, we may also almost say that in rhetoric, imagination is present for the sake of passion, and therefore, in the long run, for the sake of action, while in poetry, passion is present for the sake of imagination, in the long run, for the sake of wisdom or spiritual health, the rightness and richness of a man's total response to the world. Such rightness, of course, has a tendency to contribute indirectly to right action, besides being in itself exhilarating and tranquilizing. That is why the old critics were right enough when they said that poetry, taught by delighting or delighted by teaching, Mm -hmm. the rival theories of Dr. Richards and Professor D.G. James are therefore perhaps not so different that we cannot recognize a point of contact. Poetry for Dr. Richards, produces a wholesome equilibrium of our psychological attitudes. For Professor James, it presents an object of secondary imagination, gives us a view of the world, but a concrete, as opposed to a purely conceptual view of reality, would in fact involve right attitudes, and the totality of right attitudes, if a man is a creature at all adapted to the world he inhabits would presumably be in wholesome equilibrium. But however this may be, poetry certainly aims at making the reader's mind what it was not before. The idea of a poetry which exists only for the poet, 
A poetry which the public rather overhears than hears is a foolish novelty in criticism. There's nothing specially admirable in talking to oneself. Indeed, it is arguable that himself is the very audience before whom a man postures most and on whom he practices the most elaborate deceptions. Next comes the question of stock responses. By a stock response, Dr. I.A. Richards means a deliberately organized attitude which is substituted for the direct free play of experience. In my opinion, such deliberate organization is one of the first necessities of human life, and one of the main functions of art is to assist it. All that we describe as constancy in love or friendship, as loyalty in political life or in general, as perseverance, all solid virtue and stable pleasure, depends on organizing chosen attitudes and maintaining them against the eternal flux, or direct free play, of mere immediate experience. This Dr. Richards would not perhaps deny, but his school puts the emphasis the other way. They talk as if improvement of our responses were always required in the direction of finer discrimination and greater particularity, never as if men needed responses more normal and more traditional than they now have. <laughs> to me, on the other hand, it seems that most people's responses are not stock enough, and that the play of experience is too free and too direct in most of us for safety or happiness or human dignity. Oof. Wow. A number of causes may be assigned for the opposite belief. One, the decay of logic resulting mm. in an untroubled assumption that the particular is real and the universal is not. Oh, Two, oh, a romantic primitivism, not shared by Dr. Richards himself, which prefers the merely natural to the elaborated, the unwilled to the willed. Hence a loss of the old conviction, once shared by Hindu, Platonist, Stoic, Christian, and Humanist alike, that simple experience, so far from being something venerable, is in itself mere raw material to be mastered, shaped, and worked up by the will. Mm. Three, a confusion arising from the fact that both are voluntary between the organization of a response and the pretense of a response. Von Hugel says somewhere, I kiss my son not only because I love him, but in order that I may love him. That is organization and good. But you may also kiss children in order to make it appear that you love them. That is pretense and bad. The distinction must not be overlooked. Sensitive critics are so tired of seeing good stock responses aped by bad writers that when at last they meet the reality, they mistake it for one more instance of posturing. They are rather like a man I knew who had seen so many bad pictures of moonlight on water that he criticized a real weir under a real moon as conventional. <laughs> Four, a belief not unconnected with the doctrine of the unchanging human heart, which I shall discuss later, that a certain elementary rectitude of human response is given by nature herself and may be taken for granted so that poets secure of this basis are free to devote themselves to the more advanced work of teaching us ever finer and finer discrimination. Mm -hmm. I believe this to be a dangerous delusion. Children like dabbling in dirt. They have to be taught the stock response to it. Normal sexuality, far from being a datum, is achieved by a long and delicate process of suggestion and adjustment, which proves too difficult for some individuals, and at times, 
for whole societies. The stock response to pride, which Milton reckoned on when he delineated his Satan, has been decaying ever since the Romantic movement began. That is one of the reasons why I am composing these lectures. The stock response to treachery has become uncertain. Only the other day I heard a respectable working man defend Lord Ha Ha by remarking coolly, and with no hint of anger or irony, you've got to remember that's how he earns his pay. Hmm. The stock response to death has become uncertain. Hmm. I have heard a man say that the only amusing thing that happened while he was in hospital was the death of a patient in the same ward. The stock response to pain has become uncertain. I have heard Mr. Elliot's comparison of evening to a patient on an operating table praised, nay gloated over, not as a striking picture of sensibility and decay, but because it was so, quote, pleasantly unpleasant, end quote. Even the stock response to pleasure cannot be depended on. I have heard a man, and a young man too, condemn Dunn's more erotic poetry because sex, as he called it, always made him think of Lysol and rubber goods. Oh. <laughs> that elementary rectitude of human response at which we are so ready to fling the unkind epithets of stock, crude, bourgeois, and conventional, so far from being given, is a delicate balance of trained habits, laboriously acquired and easily lost, on the maintenance of which depend both our virtues and our pleasures, and even, perhaps, the survival of our species. For though the human heart is not unchanging, nay, changes almost out of recognition in the twinkling of an eye, the laws of causation are... When poisons have become fashionable, they do not cease to kill. The examples I have cited warn us that those stock responses which we need in order to be even human are always in danger. In the light of that alarming discovery, there is no need to apologize for Milton or for any other romantic poet. The older poetry, by continually insisting on certain stock themes, as that love is sweet, death bitter, virtue lovely, and children, or gardens, delightful, was performing a service not only of moral and civil, but even of biological importance. Once again, the old tricks were quite right, when they said that poetry, quote, instructed by delighting. For poetry was formerly one of the chief means whereby each new generation learned not to copy, but by copying to make the good stock responses. We learn how to do these things by doing the things we are learning how to do, as Aristotle observes in Ethics, chapter 2, verse 1. Since poetry has abandoned that office, the world has not bettered. While the moderns have been pressing forward to conquer new territories of consciousness, the old territory, in which alone man can live, has been left unguarded, and we are in danger of finding the enemy in our rear. We need most urgently to recover the lost poetic art of enriching a response without making it eccentric, and of being normal without being vulgar. Mm. Meanwhile, until that recovery is made, such poetry as Milton's is more than ever necessary to us. There is furthermore 
a special reason why mythical poetry ought not to attempt novelty in respect of its ingredients. What it does with ingredients may be as novel as you please, but giants, dragons, paradises, gods, and the like are themselves the expression of certain basic elements in man's spiritual experience. In that sense, they are more like words, the words of a language which speak the else unspeakable. Then they are like people and places in a novel. To give them radically new character is not so much original as ungrammatical. That strange blend of genius and vulgarity, the film of Snow White, will illustrate the point. There was good unoriginality in the drawing of the queen. She was the very archetype of all beautiful, cruel queens, the thing one expected to see, save that it was truer to type than one had dared to hope for. There was bad originality in the bloated, drunken, low comedy faces of the dwarves, neither the wisdom, the avarice, nor the earthiness of true dwarves were there, but an imbecility or of arbitrary invention. But in the scene where Snow White wakes in the woods, both the right originality and the right unoriginality were used together. The good unoriginality lay in the use of small, delicate animals as comforters. In the true Markin style, the good originality lay in letting us first mistake their eyes for the eyes of monsters. The whole art consists not in the evoking the unexpected, but in evoking with a perfection and accuracy beyond expectation the very image that has haunted us all our lives. The marvel about Milton's paradise or Milton's hell is simply that they are there, that the thing has at last been done, that our dream stands before us and does not melt. Not many poets can thus draw out Leviathan with a hook. Compared with this, the short-lived pleasure of any novelty the poet might have inserted would be a mere kickshaw. The charge of calculated grandiosity of stilts remains. The difficulty here is that the modern critic tends to think Milton is somehow trying to deceive. We feel the pressure of the poet on every word, the builded quality of the verse. And since this is the last effect most poets wish to produce today, we are in danger of supposing that Milton also would have concealed it if he could, that this is a telltale indication of his failure to achieve spontaneity. But does Milton want to sound spontaneous? He tells us that his verse was unpremeditated, in fact, and attributes this to the muse. Perhaps it was. Perhaps by that time his own epic style had become a language which thinks and poetizes of itself. But that is hardly the point. The real question is whether an air of spontaneity, an impression that this is the direct outcome of immediate personal emotion, would be in the least proper to this kind of work. I believe it would not. We should miss the all-important sense that something out of the ordinary is being done. Bad poets in the tradition of Dunn write artfully and try to make it sound colloquial. 
If Milton were to practice deception, it would be the other way round. A man performing a rite is not trying to make you think that this is his natural way of walking, these the unpremeditated gestures of his own domestic life. If long usage has in fact made the ritual unconscious, he must labor to make it look deliberate, in order that we, the assistants, may feel the weight of the solemnity pressing on his shoulders as well as on our own. Anything casual or familiar in his manner is not sincerity or spontaneity, but impertinence. Mm. Even if his robes were not heavy, in fact, they ought to look heavy. But there is no need to suppose any deception. Habit and devout concentration of mind, or something else for which the muse is as good a name as any other, may well have brought it to pass that the verse of Paradise Lost flowed into his mind without labor. But what flowed was something stylized, remote from conversation, hierophantic. The style is not pretending to be natural any more than a singer is pretending to talk. Even the poet, when he appears in the first person within his own poem, is not to be taken as the private individual, John Milton. If he were that, he would be an irrelevance. He also becomes an image the image of the blind bard, and we are told about him nothing that does not help that archetypical pattern. It is his office, not his person, that is sung. It would be a gross error to regard the opening of Samson and the opening of Book Three as giving us respectively what Milton really felt and what he would be thought to feel about his blindness. The real man, of course, being a man, felt many more things and less interesting things about it than are expressed in either. From the total experience the poet selects for his epic and for his tragedy, what is proper to each, the impatience, the humiliation, the questionings of providence, go into Samson because the business of tragedy is, quote, by raising pity and fear or terror to purge the mind of those and such like passions with a kind of delight stirred up by reading or seeing those passions well imitated, end quote. If he had not been blind himself, he would still, though with less knowledge to guide him, have put just those elements of a blind man's experience into the mouth of Samson. For the, quote, disposition of his fable, end quote, so as to, quote, stand best with verisimilitude and decorum requires them. On the other hand, whatever is calm and great, whatever associations make blindness venerable, all this he selects for the opening of book three. Sincerity and insincerity are words that have no application to either case. We want a great blind poet in the one. We want a suffering and questioning prisoner on the other. Decorum is the grand masterpiece. The grandeur which the poet assumes in his poetic capacity should not arouse hostile reactions. It is for our benefit. He makes his epic a right so that we may share it. 
the more ritual it becomes, the more we are elevated to the rank of participants. Precisely because the poet appears not as a private person, but as a hierophant or a corrigus, we are summoned not to hear what one particular man thought and felt about the fall, but to take part under his leadership in a great mimetic dance of all Christendom, ourselves soaring and ruining from heaven, ourselves enacting hell and paradise, the fall and the repentance. Thus far of Milton's style on the assumption that it is in fact as remote and artificial as is thought. No part of my defense depends on questioning that assumption, for I think it ought to be remote and artificial. But it would not be honest to suppress my conviction that the degree to which it possesses these qualities has been exaggerated. Much that we think typically poetic diction in Paradise Lost was nothing of the sort, and it has since become poetic diction only because Milton used it. When he writes of an optic glass in part one, line 288, we think this is a poetical periphrasis because we are remembering Thompson or Akenside but it seems to have been an ordinary expression in Milton's time. When we read Ruin and Combustion in Part 1, Line 46, we naturally exclaim, Ot Miltonus, Ot Diabolus. Yet the identical words are said to occur in a document of the Long Parliament. Alchemy, in Part 2, Lines 517, sounds like the Miltonic vague. It is really almost a trade name. Numerous, as applied to verse in Part 5, line 150, sounds poetic, but was not. If we could read Paradise Lost as it really was, we should see more play of muscles than we see now. Hmm. But only a little more. I am defending Milton's style as a ritual style. Hmm. I think the older critics may have misled us by saying that admiration or astonishment is the proper response to such poetry. Certainly, if admiration is taken in its modern sense, the misunderstanding becomes disastrous. I should say, rather, that joy or exhilaration was what it produced. An overplus of robust and tranquil well-being in a total experience which contains both rapturous and painful elements. In The Dry Salvages, Mr. Eliot speaks of Quote, music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. Only as we emerge from the mode of consciousness induced by the symphony do we begin to notice more, to attend explicitly to the sounds which introduce it. In the same way, when we are caught up into the experience which a grand style communicates, we are, in a sense, no longer conscious of the style. Incense is consumed by being used. The poem kindles admirations which leave us no leisure to admire the poem. When our participation in a rite becomes perfect, we think no more of ritual, but are engrossed by that about which the rite is performed. But afterwards, we recognize that ritual was the sole method by which this concentration could be achieved. Those who in reading Paradise Lost find themselves forced to attend throughout to the sound and the manner have simply not discovered 
what this sound and this manner were intended to do. A schoolboy who reads a page of Milton by chance for the first time and then looks up and says, By gum! Not in the least knowing how the thing has worked, but only that new strength and width and brightness and zest have transformed his world is nearer to the truth than they. Hmm. By gum. By gum indeed. So... Ever since my mom died, I have been burning with passion and energy, just begging to be used by God for something. And uh, Lewis talks about incense is meant to be burned, music to be heard, rituals to be performed. Oh. So I've been just almost begging the Lord to put me to use because uh, I've been having so much energy that I I tend to fly off the track sometimes recently. You find yourself relating to what Lewis was saying in what way, Jim? Hmm. Letting go. Like I want to get into Milton, like get out there, let all shame, pretense, posturing, all of this... Or confusion. Confusion get in my way to enjoy, to feel it, to be led. And to, in the last chapter, Milton is the rudder. We are the ship and we need to go so that he can steer us. If we are sitting on our butts thinking about what Milton meant in line 273. Get on my own We haven't moved a thing. And uh, he talks about uh, rhetoric and, and poetry. And this isn't poetry. This is rhetoric. Or is it something both? It's what's well, epic. It's epic secondary poetry. In that, Lewis talked about how rhetoric was used for action and poetry, for wisdom, and for broadening our world. And it seems like Milton is doing something akin to both in a way, in that the action is taking you into the fall. It's taking you into something great, and and you're living in it. If you could just forget yourself for a second, if you could just let all the little uppercase words like barbarism and avarice and confusion if you could just get them out of the way you could really you could really see something i agree for me is a reflection i suppose of my barbarism but it's been it was difficult with epic poetry to get to the point where it flowed through and like I, I suppose I would describe it as I would go out to the ocean with my surfboard under my arm and I'd try to understand the tides hmm. or I'd try to understand the surf or I'd try to understand instead of like getting out there and just trying to ride the waves bro ride the waves <laughs> and then 
after I get done, I like get up on my board for a minute and I, it would start flowing and I'd be like, Oh, this is great. And then I'd wipe out and then I would get the surfboard under my arm. Then I'd try to figure out what, what's going on. Like there's this way of reading short poems that got in the way of me reading epic poetry. Hmm. When, when did you really get good at uh, surfing? So I would not say that I'm good at it yet, but I will say I'm better than I was when I started. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So usually I use poetry to help us understand other art forms, but there are occasions when other art forms are used to understand poetry. And in this case, I think dancing is the best one uh, for this audience. But it also works if you're a musician and you play jazz, which not many folks do. But in Lindy, Real breakthrough, usually the first major breakthrough as I'm teaching people how to, how to Lindy Hop, comes with extreme exhaustion. So I will teach them the basic for six months to two years, and then they'll finally go somewhere where they dance for eight hours straight with occasional breaks, and then somewhere around the nine and ten hour break, uh, ten hour usual you know, point, um, then they start to really get breakthrough. And since most dancing takes you know usually kicks off at two in the afternoon then you're looking at you know the 10 hour mark being midnight they start to get some breakthrough and then another two hours later at two in the morning then all of a sudden it's like hydroplaning all mm. of a sudden they've let go enough and they're exhausted enough that they can't resist anymore mm. and they allow things to flow so for me i took a good reader that i found on audible and I took the Fairy Queen, and I just turned it on, and I drove for 10 hours. Mm. And then it like just starts to flow. And I, the, the hardest part was attending to it. Don't let yourself tune out for long periods. I would tune out occasionally, and then I'd be like, it's okay. I don't need to skip back. I can just re-engage wherever we're at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this tiny little analytical side, side of me, just barely there, barely there would say, no, no, we got to get back to where you left off. No, don't do that. Just keep going. Mm -hmm. Just keep swimming. And, and so when I did that, it helped a lot. Then I did it again with Paradise Lost. Now, I've started Paradise Lost probably 24 or 25 times. And I purchased an ancient, like, a very, I say ancient, a very old edition of the book, pre-modernism, you know, yeah, late 1800s, early, early 19, mm -hmm. late 1800s, basically. Basically. And then I bought a, um, you know, 1920s version of the book. And then I got the biblically annotated version of the book. I have several copies of Milton's Paradise Lost, and they all bring different things to the table for me. But the best thing was the audiobook because I couldn't. I couldn't analyze. I couldn't try to get it. And I can't imagine for other personality types. I have the most free-flowing personality type, the least inclined to analytical behaviors my poor friends and this one was the only way i was able to break through to step into that position where i'm allowing to let go because at least to my american mind there is confusion that shows up if i don't immediately comprehend hmm. and then i don't get it well, i don't it must get it mean nothing uh, there's nothing here then or I'm stupid, it's too hard, this isn't worth it. All the things that I would tell myself as a child when I didn't want to do to learn how to do a task or learn a skill. Yeah. All the same behavior patterns of a child, a petulant right. child. And, but the other thing that goes on is part of what's off-putting about it, 
I suspect, is not the archaic language, it's ceremony itself. So if ceremony and formality... Right. The R-I-T-E? Rites or ritual um, solemnity. Solemnity, solemnity. So we, yeah. see, we see solemnity and we're like, oh, wow, this is a new flavor. But then I, I run up against ceremony and all of my training against a cer- empty ceremony kicks in. Mm-hmm. So there's several layers, particularly amongst Protestants, that have put us on guard against this empty ceremony, empty pomp, empty circumstance, where even the individuals administering the rites, it's dead to them mm-hmm. because they've done it too many times distracted. And they did it too many times where they frankly half-assed it. Mm-hmm. And so for me personally, you know, wrestling with this idea of solemnity as it relates specifically to the issue of ceremony, how are those integrating in Milton's works? And so mm-hmm. I'm approaching this, right? And, and Lewis talks about that. He about, does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, uh, look at this. I mean, some of the stuff he's saying here is so relevant in the last seven years, right? Mm. Yes. Where he talks about us losing what what our reactions should be, our reactions to death, our reactions to love, our reactions to pain. I could have listened to that paragraph and not known who it was by and assumed it was someone writing about today. Uh, yeah, right. it's the decay of logic resulting in an untroubled assumption that the particular is real and universal is not. My truth. My truth. I, I thought, that, yeah, oh gosh, I thought it was, I was like, wow, he really is preaching to 2023, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Number two, a romantic primitivism not shared by Dr. Richards himself, which prefers the merely natural to the elaborated, the unwilled to the willed, and to mm. loss of the old conviction once shared by Hindu, Platonist, Stoic, Christian, and quote-unquote humanist alike, that simple experience so far from being something venerable, is in itself mere raw material to be mastered, shaped, and worked up by the will. Hmm. And number three, a confusion arising from the fact that both are voluntary between the organization of a response and the pretense of a response. One of the disgusting elements that we're facing with with all, all of these generations that are in current existence right now and in rebellion against God is pretense. It's nauseating how fake everybody is and how self-deceived they are in their bogus victim niche. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of bullshit. Yep. And uh, since my mom died, I've been uh, not pulling my punches. I've been trying to speak more openly and truthful to myself included because uh, that pretense is dangerous because the first person you lie to is yourself and then you start believing your own clout you start believing your own bs and then you don't know which way is up or down you don't know your way your backside to your front side and you get like turned into a clown i think because well you start lying and you start saying ah no no this is really me this is really me you're like um i i mean what i say okay well yeah well well, let's let's talk about this in for a second you've got you got to recognize that there are certain stock responses that the, that a culture will teach you mm-hmm. how to handle. A culture will teach you that, right? Mm-hmm. So he mentioned one of them, which was grief. So how I'm responding to my mother's death by cancer in grief 
is very different than yours. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that this is my, you know, upteenth trip around the mountain, around grief, right? mm-hmm. with someone close. This is your first real trip. Yep. Yep. And it, it was a big one. Yeah. You find yourself now in this position where you're reacting super strong to what happened to your mom. And I've known Nancy a little bit longer than Jim has. And my experience of Nancy was she was a very good archetype of a mother, Hmm. of a very gracious, kind, careful, supportive, safety net mother. And I, my mom was angular. You know, your mother was, come here, you just cuddle, just cuddle forever. Oh, yeah. You're upset here, here, come and let me comfort you. I'll coddle you a little bit. And there you go. You can, you can get back out of it. She used to say this thing to all of us all the time. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Yeah. You can do whatever you put your mind to. You can do anything. Like, and we all laughed at it, but now I don't, I don't really laugh now because like holy crap <laughs> she's <laughs> i've been being taught intention plus mechanism yeah all your result. life yeah that's all my whole life because she says you can do anything right and you took it for the gospel and, and so one of the things that that is different though about the stock response was like when you got on the motorcycle you had done no practicing on the motorcycle nope you didn't know how to operate a clutch a i didn't clutch. even know you didn't even know about a hand clutch you got out on a bike and you just crashed right yep so a stock response should be we bring jim in and we're like jim i know you're out here trying to live and take whatever is going on i almost don't care your body isn't yours Mm. it's hers right don't f it up (laughs) don't especially don't do anything to the face but in particular don't don't get out there and yeah, right. Yeah, like lose a limb. And then you told or, me, that, and then you told me a story about about climbing up on a rock, and there was ocean, and there's or water or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I climbed a mountain, a small mountain, a small mountain, and there was like ocean around and all this stuff. And I'm like, look, I'm okay with you dying because I believe in the providence of God and so on, and I believe in heaven, I really do. But your body's not your own anymore. And any more than hers is. Mm. And you wouldn't want her taking those risks because, hey. <laughs> that's true. So that's my stock, res- like, that's my automatic stock response. And I'm like, what are my stock responses supposed to be? I have one more story along these lines before you offer a response to this. I was, yeah, I was 19 years old and I was in Ohio and, or Iowa, I get the two mixed up. I think it was Ohio. And I was brought into this room and, uh, there was these, they'd rolled up these mats and it was this church. And what had happened at this particular church in this particular town was within a month of my dad dying, a pastor was out running and someone uh, drove across two lanes of traffic, jumped a median of some kind oh and jumped gosh. up on the curb and crushed him, killing him when they were driving a van. And he had a little boy and it was, it was uh, Mennonite and Amish country. And, uh, the the mom came in and said, you didn't tell me who you were. And I said, I did. I, you know, I, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I did. I, I definitely said, hi, my name's Jared. And I shook her hand. Yeah, but you didn't tell me your last name, she says. 
And I said, oh, okay. Um, I don't know how you figured out my last name. If I, I don't know. I was a little bewildered. And her name was Mary. And her husband was the one that had died. And she she was a little miffed and she had her armor on and this happens with people that are grieving is they deal with it in different ways. And this, this particular woman was um, angry and hurting and had her armor on is the way I describe. I don't know how to describe it. That's, that's the only way. And she had a stick that she was, she was going to bonk people. It's felt that way. But so I'm sitting there and she says, um, I'm sorry, right before she brings her son in, she says, uh, here's what's happened. My husband died while we were at the funeral. My father-in-law is a Mennonite. That's my husband's father. He's a dyed-in-the-wool, hardcore Mennonite. And when my son began to cry, he corrected him and said, you do not cry. Men don't cry. Hmm. At the funeral. So she says, in light of the fact that your father was a pastor, in light of the fact of this stuff that went down, in light of the fact of all these things, I'm now going to bring my son in so you can talk to him about grief. So she brings her son in. He sits down. He's like, I don't know who this complete stranger is. And then they left us alone mm. in this room or didn't leave us alone. They stepped away out of your shot. You know, what am I supposed to do in that situation? Am I supposed to impart some words of wisdom? And I'm like, Oh God, help me. Cause you know, I'm dealing with my grief in the midst of all of this. My dad had been dead about a year. Oh mm. gosh. And so, so in the face of all of this, you have to turn to what I would call the stock response to grief. You have to look to, was the Mennonite correct? The stock response is men don't cry. Let's, we've been taught by the culture, men need to cry more. I'm tired of men crying all the time about everything. I want to cry because something is beautiful or because something is meaningful or because something touches me or because I'm going to miss somebody. But I will not be ruled over by grief, which I think is what the Mennonite should have been communicating, and his timing couldn't have been worse. But I couldn't turn to the man, a complete stranger, to this little boy and say, your grandfather is wrong. You see, I can't do that. Mm. Because honor your father and mother, the days yeah, will be prolonged. Yeah, you're just undermining something there. And down the road, where am I going to be in six months, two years? Not there. I'm not going to be there. And I'd been around long enough, and as pastor's kid, everybody wanted to sweep in and and help the pastor's kid, and I'll be a surrogate father to you, you know, and all this crap. And it was all showmanship. And they wanted kudos from community, or they wanted a pat on the head, or they felt like Jesus would love them more. I don't know what they were doing, but they were kind of retarded about it. It was kind of annoying. Mm. Huh. But when you look at these stock responses as it relates, say, to grief or to any element in the culture, then, I, then I'm, ex, I'm cross-examining these things going, all right, how much of this needs to happen? Like how much of this is, it is healthy for Jim to go and be a lot and just process the grief he needs to do. And how much of this is, I'm like, hey, you sinned when you risked your life. Your mother doesn't want you doing that. Does your mother want me to tell you that? It's a good question. Forgive me for saying this so so bluntly she is alive yeah don't you i'm gonna cuss brace yourself don't you fucking get it she's alive don't you fucking get it she's alive i'm not gonna talk about leslie as if she's not alive hmm. she's alive she's just not here right she's gone away and and so so you and i like 
I don't know what heaven is like. If heaven is is you know, pop culture is depicting it as some kind of thing where people are hanging out at like a buffet and they're looking down through the clouds and they're watching us and they're like eating. Yeah. I don't think it works that way. No. I don't know what it's like. But I'll tell you this. There is scripture to suggest that therefore, as we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance. There is something to suggest that heaven exists inside of time, even though God is outside of time. And that, that being the case, they exist in a place that has some relation to time and space. And if that's the case, it's possible they are actually looking down on us. They are actually observing the behavior patterns. That is true, as near as I can tell. That's as bold as I or, or the Bible also talks about being asleep until the time comes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't maybe know one, yeah. maybe some people go to sleep. Maybe, maybe some I hope I don't, or... I hope I die and then wake up and it's the second coming. But yeah, that's what I want because I love sleeping and what I know of sleeping is it's right. delightful. Right, right. <clears throat> to you know, perchance to dream. Now, if if the stock response is that we're we're approaching culture with things as momentous to you and I as grief, you know, these stock responses is something we should be self aware about, and shouldn't we be? I really want to stop and think about them. I want, to th- I want to be logical, as they said, about our grief. I want to be logical about it. I'm not going to give in. My mom died. I'm not going to give in to what's you know, lurking over there for me. Well, so what I wanted to do for my stock response was I wanted to build an altar and offer my grief upon it. Turns out I was, I, I was like being like Malachi, and I was offering mm. some weird stuff. Yeah, it wasn't my grief. Hmm. So you said uh, one of the things I wanted to retort was uh, mm-hmm. the recklessness of uh, the motorcycle incident. The motorcycle, Jim's recklessness. I've been thinking about that a lot. You know what I've actually gotten back into is riding yeah. my my bicycle, my BMX bike. Um, for you, those who one, don't know, yeah. I grew up riding my B, BMX bike. Breaking it's, arms and legs and things, right? Nope. Never broken arm or like a couple of years ago, I bought another BMX bike. It had been a while, so probably since I was like 14 or 15, yeah. eh, 16, maybe whatever. I don't feel like I'm being reckless when I ride my BMX bike. I put on a helmet. I put on gloves. I put on shin pads. I know what I'm doing. I uh, still get hurt a little bit, but it's like minor wounds. And, you know, God's given me a body to heal. And uh, I've been able to actually hurt myself less. Like I started riding my bike, and there was a couple of big crashes. But but didn't in in the description. Are, but if if we're talking about the stock phrases, and I, I just want to put, press you on this a little bit. Let's leave the BMX out of, out of sure. the equation for a minute. But in the in the response to grief, there was a hyper energy. Yeah, a, a, a like, and then you were you were you were doing things like climbing mountains. I didn't know what to do. Like. I was exploding. I wish I had a better stock response. But there wasn't a cultural moment where you're like, this is how you behave when you're grieving. Like that doesn't exist right now that no. I'm aware of. No, if somebody would have said... That's my point. The point is... Some is people grieve a- like this, Jim, and some people grieve like that. You're one of the people who has more energy than usual, so you should grieve there, like there this. There was no Grandpa Mennonite to stand next to you and say, you don't do this, you don't do that, you do do this. Like that I wasn't there. I actually did, actually. You had a grandpa Mennonite? Uh, it was Annalise's grandpa. Oh, really? Yeah. He's not a Mennonite. 
just he's to be not a Mennonite. Man, man, <laughs> but he could be. He could be. He. We went on a a long car trip with him, and in the course of probably eight to ten hours of being with him for the entire day, he spoke so much wisdom and took so much so much of my raw energy and like worked with it and gave it back to me as something like. Because one of the things that I believe is when uh, grief happened to me was I I got broken down like I I shattered. And so you need to rebuild after you've gotten broken down. And so um, the first stone, and I mean like foundationally broken down, not just, you know, a little bit. The first, first brick was Jesus, and it was this cornerstone in my mind. I could feel it. It was this dark, smooth cornerstone that extended past my consciousness, but it jutted into me, my mind, and that started the corner. And then there was Annalisa, she was next, then it was uh, my family, and then it was extended family, and it then it was work, and then it was like all of these things got put down as a foundation of like who I am. And I, I literally had to rebuild my identity, but it started with Christ, and then it started with outside of me. It wasn't a, oh, I think I'm going to choose, you know, think of something like I'm going to be transgender or something like, like whatever. I was handed a brick and there was a lot of bricks I rejected. I don't even remember what they were. I just know that I rejected some things. People were like, oh, you want to be kind of like this? And I, I remember being very extremely on purpose right after my mom died because I didn't want something to go down in my foundation that was going to be shit. Well, so stock responses was family. That's a stock. In, 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 in grief, what's number one? Jesus, your God. Like, that's stock response. Who's your God? You know? it's, it's the, your stock responses would be based on who is your God. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it was the, my second stock response was my wife. Like my wife is whom I love. Like she is the second most important thing to me. And then the third was my family. You know, this is where I felt uh, let down was I didn't feel like I had very much ceremony. It's like, I feel like I had the right response, but not the right ceremony. Ah, that's it. I knew that God, Jesus was the first stone. Like that was the right response, but I didn't know what to do about that afterwards, you know? But in the midst of grief, the response that people, people have, you know, that folks can have, depending on the level of grief that they commit themselves to, which in turn is reflective of how close or intimate that nature of the relationship was. And so your, your grief response with your mom was very strong. Well, I mean, that's obvious. But then in the midst of your grief response, what was bewildering to some on the outside might be that um, he's jumping all over the place and he's like super busy and really loud and, and everybody's like, why don't you cry a little? Oh, I cried so much. Right. Just people weren't there but, when I cried. No, they weren't there when you cried. But for, you know, you, you see that and you're like, 
what what is this of of the stages of grief? Where are we at with this guy? Where is the convention? You know, where is the ceremony? Where is the? I'm sorry that my grief response doesn't no, 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 fit no, into society's nice the polite. society's norms. But if you look at the grief response of saying, at what point do I come in with my conventionals, right, and say, mm. some of this is totally allowed, but some of this you have to be aware of. You have to watch out for like where is that line in a, in a culture so if you were to say to jared let's turn the tables for a second jared your your grief response to your mom's death is pretty cold you've barely cried at all hmm. you know you didn't give a very stirring speech at her funeral you didn't do a podcast about her you didn't you know what's going on jared what is going on, Jared? Well, I refuse to answer to you. Do you. I'm sorry that I'm not crying enough for you, for you, Annalisa. Gosh. I mean, obviously, that could be a response that I have. But I think the bigger question might be, are you choosing to honor your father and mother in the midst of grief? Hmm. Or is what you're doing... I think this is a, a legitimate question because we're talking about parents in this specific case. But is this honoring to your father and mother? Or is this dishonoring to your father and mother? That's the first question well, that you know Jared who should I answer. Crashed the motorcycle right in front of my dad. Right. Yeah, I, I was trying to impress him. Right. I was trying. To, I don't know. I had in my mind. I was. I don't know. So for me, I was trying to do something for him. Yeah. I don't know. So for me, it was um, my the honoring of my mother, as far as I was concerned, was based on my experience of her. And I, I'm just talking about my grief here. So my my experience with my mom was she was always trying to communicate Bill didn't kill himself. But all she could get out was Bill didn't kill himself. And everybody would go, yes, yes, yes. And they'd pat her on the head. And they'd be like, Bill killed himself. Hmm. And it doesn't matter. I say everybody. But there was a significant number of people who did that. Hmm. And when I came along and said... Bill didn't kill himself, and it's a lie. I'm not saying you're a liar. I'm not saying you're a villain. I'm saying that is a lie. Don't repeat it. Mm. After that, I mean, like that was the point. That was the point of honoring father and mother. So for me, people said, Jared, Jared, that is not the spot stock response. What you do is you get up and you say nice things so that everybody in the room is comfortable at her funeral and has nice feels. So I'm not going to throw rocks at you for people being, I, I do mean this, and you got to hear me. I think that you honored your, your mother in a huge way, and you continue to do so. But the stock response from the outside is bewildering, just like mine was. Hmm. Yeah, I had a lot of people going like, what are you doing? Why are you doing would be my question. Why? And if you're like this spiritual thing in the dark, and I'm like, I am not charismatic enough for you. <laughs> then I believe in the demonic. <laughs> no, I there are parts of me that I I don't I can't remember because they are in such a different headspace that it's it's in uh, I can't get back there. But I kind of want to, but I don't want to, but I kind of do. 
Because there was there was something there, but it was untamed, and it was a. Uh... Let me tell you about a headspace. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed. It was the most excruciating read I've ever done. Mm-hmm. I couldn't mm-hmm. finish it. I got halfway through. I've read it twice. It's excruciating. Why is it excruciating? <sighs> well, it's a raw look at at grief. He lost his wife, and. Every chapter is different. At the very end, he says, I started out trying to write a map of grief, and it turns out there is no map. Huh. It's illogical. It meanders. I feel that. And you would yep. read one chapter and say, uh-huh. yes, that is how it is. And uh-huh. in the next chapter, he would say, I just read what I wrote, and it's not like that at all. It's, it's actually right. yeah. like this. And It's actually it mercurial. Was. And... He says, how do you, he's like, people talk about getting over it, but when a man loses his leg, how do you get over it? Like, you don't. I mean, the leg heals, but the leg's not there, and your life is forever and completely different. And I don't want to go back to enjoying this life without my wife the way I did Mm -hmm. in my youth. That would be, that would be a betrayal of her, and I want to know how to continue this relationship we had in the future. Like, how am I still the faith? Like, what's my role as the faithful husband as we are now? Like, what is that? I don't know. And that pains me. He said things like, I sat in my grief long enough to recognize it was anger. Yeah. And then he flips around and he says, I wish it could have been me. I wish it could have been me. And then he says... I wish I could have died for my wife, and I know I can't. The only person that had the power to do so, or the right, was Jesus. It was an interesting how he was changing a perspective on grief in terms of the redemption of eternal life by Jesus. And then the selfishness that he recognizes is in his own heart saying, I want her to be with me forever. And that the faith he had, he realizes, was no faith at all. You're like, Lewis is saying that about the faith he had. Like, In the face of that grief. Mm. Mm. So I, I see that where you talk about like the changing in mid-sentence or whatever. I would liken grief for me to be extremely mercurial. And I was uh, changing my opinions in mid-thought. I was changing like I would realize... I, whatever I was saying wasn't quite true. If you chastised me, I would immediately agree with you. I'd be like full force like this. And then you'd be like, no, Jim, you can't do that because of this. And I'd be like, you're right. And I would be like already, and people would be like, hold on. And people couldn't keep up with me. There were times I would change my outfits multiple times a day because I would feel so many different things that I was like, I can't be wearing these clothes. They're not reflective of how I feel. This, the point of this conversation, why I'm picking on this, is because it's the front of both of us right now. Hmm. And it has to do with us trying to decipher a stock response. Hmm. Your stock response to your mother's death of cancer within four months of my mother's death of cancer in a culture in the valley where we both grew up in Zilla and now we both live in Yakima. We both, we both, we both, we both. White. Male Americans, White, straight, male Americans from the same. They've been reading the same books together. Yeah. All right. 
the stock response to treachery has been uncertain. Only the other day I heard a respectable working man defend Lord Ha Ha by remarking coolly and with no hint of anger or irony. You've got to remember that's how he earns his pay. The stock response to death has become uncertain. I have heard a man say that the only amusing thing that happened while he was in hospital was the death of a patient in the same ward. The stock response to pain has become uncertain. I have heard Mr. Elliott's comparison of evening to a patient on an operating table praised, nay, gloated over, not as a striking picture of sensibility and decay, but because it was so pleasantly unpleasant. Even the stock response to pleasure cannot be depended on. That elementary rectitude of human response at which we are so ready to fling the unkind epithets of stock crude, bourgeoisie, and conventional, so far from being given, is a delicate balance of trained habits, I know what laboriously acquired and easily lost, on the maintenance of which depend both our virtues and our pleasures, and even perhaps the survival of our species. For though the human heart is not unchanging, the laws of causation are when poisons become fashionable, they do not cease to kill. You know what the stock response is what? in our ancient biblical texts? Hmm. It's to give people some space, to let them sit in their ashes. Hmm. Job sat for days silently, and his friends were with him, and they shut up and just were there. You know, they said some stuff afterwards, but at least they were there just silently when king david was you know mourning for his child who was sick and he kind of like preloaded his mourning or when jesus died you know all of the believers they had time and so what i i feel like i didn't have i missed one day of work I feel like, and I'm not blaming my work, not at all. But in our culture. But in our culture. And then they expected me to act rationally and normal. They didn't offer me the modesty to have the opportunity to sit in my grief. Offer you the modesty? That's not the right word. Uh, yes. Mod they didn't offer you modesty? They didn't cover me. Oh. I felt uncovered. Nude. I felt nude. I felt raw. I had been stripped. And instead of giving me time mm. and a place to get back to a spot, they said, just reintegrate into life immediately. And I, I could have taken more time. I could have been like, I'm not. Yeah, you're not a victim. And they were like, oh, you, it'll take a long time to get over it. But I didn't want to just numb out to the grief I was feeling. But, you know, listen, if you're going to get disturbed about seeing a naked man run around acting all crazy, well, you didn't give him any damn time to get his clothes on. So don't get mad at me, bro. Yeah. That is one of my observations what i see as our stock responses culturally is you get your say at the funeral and then you don't talk about it again you you can privately but yeah it's about you about being it. silent well the so you can let the world and everyone else's lives go on it's not don't enter it. it's not 
your friends being silent and sitting with you. And I really have envied sackcloth and ashes or yes. dressing in black while yes. you're grieving and covering your, the mirrors in your house. So people walk yes. in and they're immediately reminded, oh, this person is in a state of grief. We could address it, we could not, but yes. at least you know everyone you're interacting with has that physical, tangible reminder, oh, this person is in a state of grief and maybe I should treat them a little bit conscien- consciously of that right now. Yes. Or shaving your head and yes. the hair is growing back and people see your head and they're like, yes. oh, like all these physical, tangible reminders. And it does take such time. The last time... Um, I did take bereavement leave after Nancy passed, but the previous time I took bereavement leave, you know, I uh, was given three days and I, you know, I I had other time I could have used. It lined up with a holiday, so I I had a week and it was not enough. The entire next month, two months while I was working, I was like, what am I doing here? This is insane. Why am I here? Why am I not sitting in my grief? Like, why am I here? Um, and I didn't have a good answer to that question except for, well, that this is, this is culture's stock response. This, yeah, is, shit, though. this is where I'm it is. And, expected and, to be. And the curious thing about this is in order for, to pull that off, there has to be a precedent up front. Like it's front loaded. Yeah. Like you can't decide you're going to invent this thing beforehand. No. Because in, in many cases you don't know somebody's going to die. Like it's extremely fortunate and very rare when you know someone's going to die. I know this is a, a brutal reality, but I've already shared this with Jim. Yeah. People who study the, these things and people who deal with end-of-life care, they would go to them and they would say, okay, if you were to die, how would you want to die? And they never say, in my sleep. Suddenly and in my sleep. They say, I, I choose cancer. And mm-hmm. Well, why? Because it gives you time to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And it means a lot to both sides because other than my mom, I've never been in a position to say goodbye. Yeah. It was always the last words I said was pass the ketchup. Yeah. It's just something inconsequential. Yeah. And, and so for me, some of my perspective on this was gratitude, you know, um, the other thing that it did, and I'm I'm really pleased that other people have done this as well, is when you find out someone has a terminal il- illness, get some doggone recordings and have a meaningful conversation with them for crying out loud. Yeah. I love that. That's that's changes trajectory, and we've talked about legacy in the past. So all of that's really important, very interesting. But in terms of our culture and the culture that we're making, with the wearing of black, the shaving of your head, the shrouding of mirrors, all the Victorian era stuff or Edwardian era stuff. That's that, at least that's what's evocative mm-hmm. there, right? That winds up getting abandoned by a culture that is uncomfortable with eternal life. Hmm. And and so there there's an element there that's like I'm in grieving. Why? Because my husband died, and I'm going to miss them for a long time, and I'm going to be in a great deal of grief, and that's treated with scorn. Because it's fake. Because it, you know, we've seen it. Like I, I reminded of Gone with the Wind, where she's in mourning, but she just wants to get out with other guys mm. right away. Mm. And that attitude in American culture, American popular culture, was immediately adopted. And and there's this 
this other thing that goes on that, that I call a Midwest thing, but I don't know if that's true. It's unseemly to be what's seen as melodramatic about grief. So, oh, look at Jared sitting around, moping around, feeling sorry for himself. Suck it up, you little wimp. Yeah, I'm moping around with you, you know, with your thing and your that. You got you, you know. I, I heard that when my mm. dad died from family members. Wow. And I was 17, mm. 18 years old, and I have one family member that still brings it up. Mm. You now take this issue, this complicated issue, like grief. He went down a list. Lewis just did. He went down a list of all these stock responses. What are your stock responses? The culture is your guardrails on this. People are queuing off of when the crisis hits, when an, and, and there's an instance, right, where we are required to have some stock response. The default setting is to look to the culture for the cues because when you're in crisis, you're in crisis. You're, you're not going to be you thinking don't know what clearly. You're doing. Yeah. You have to front load that so that when that moment comes, you have it. Right? Well, the problem was my grief was too big for these teeny tiny guardrails. They're like, this is how you deal with grief. And I was like overflowing the sides of it. Like my grief was too much for what I felt like the society, like stock response could handle. And, and, I, and that's curious because. If you read Grief Observed, he's like, I, I'm in a crisis. Yeah. There's a movie called Shadowlands. Okay, so it's a story about C.S. Lewis and his wife mm. and, and their romance and then her cancer and then her mm. death and then some of his response afterwards. Like the culmination of the movie is her death. Mm. And then he's talking to his coworkers and he's in a crisis and the person that, that ran it was a guy named Richard Attenborough. He's the one that, that, like, he was the director. But he consulted heavily with a, with a young man named Douglas Gresham. And Douglas Gresham was heavily, heavily, heavily involved in every aspect of that movie. And Douglas Gresham is C.S. Lewis's stepson. And in the movie, there is a little boy who plays Douglas Gresham. And it's a very, very well done movie. And if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's hard to watch, but it is true. Mm -hmm. And so what I found to be the case when you're dealing with grief and you're dealing with the guys, and forgive me for saying so, who are overflowing the boundaries is to tell the truth. Because we're looking for some truth here. I mean, I'm talking about the, when we, when we talk about our stock responses, we got to be looking at the truth. And when I, so like, I find myself saying this a lot, like stop acting like there is no afterlife. Stop acting like that. Stop thinking like that. Stop behaving like that. Capture your thoughts. Get, you know, it's not pull yourself together, buttercup. Not like that attitude. That's not what I'm talking about, but there is an afterlife. We have to be conscious of the fact that you cannot allow yourself to believe you're not seeing this person ever again. You got to be conscious of the fact that this life is the Shadowlands. Hmm. This life is the temporary. This life is a mist. 
how many billions of human beings have died up till now. You think you're going to live forever? Another billion generations are down the road for all we know. You're not going to live forever. There is a short gap of time when you're going to catch up to that other person. That's it. And so for me, it's not that I'm dead on the inside or I don't have those emotions, but rather I have to discipline myself into that, into those constraints. And I don't expect the first person to go around the mountain to, to sort that out. Hmm. I don't expect that to be the case, but it doesn't help hmm. that our stock responses are so bad. No, they are no help at all. They're no help at all. And I think it's, I mean, in a, in a culture that fears death and puts elderly people in their own separate box where we don't have to look at them if we don't want to. I went on a trip to Austria with my family and learned about my mother's family and her grandmother and the hard life she led and children she had lost when they were young and, and just suddenly my mom and her cousin, they were pouring out stories of this child who had died and, you know, this cancer in the family and this and that. And it's, it's nothing I'd ever heard of at home or hardly heard of. And then we went to this museum and we learned about this empress who lost a child in infancy and then lost a son to suicide and then wore black the rest of her reign and was very public about her grieving and her distress. And I'm like, this is a, you know, I come from this culture where this happens to you. Maybe a small circle of people have no, your inclination is to hush it up and, you know, don't tell your kids they're too young. They're too young to see something like this. And it's very, very private. Mm. And so how am I to learn to grieve if I have not been a witness to anyone's grief? And, And how am I not to feel like I'm insane in my grief when I'm like, oh, well, that I know that person lost someone at this point in time. And, you know, everything looked fine from the outside. Like, so probably they were fine. And so what's happening to me? And so when we were living in Sunnyside with Nancy and the children were running around, all I could think of was, this is so good. Mm. This is so good. And Mm. I wish I had this as a foundation. And we need this. We need this as a culture. Amen to that. Amen, amen. I never want to send any of my relatives to a rest home, as it were. Yeah. I, they're with me every day. If I can get, if I can get that, oh my gosh, give it to me. Yes. And it's not easy. No. There's, it's very hard. It is tremendously inconvenient and worth ten times whatever the a billion times whatever the inconvenience. Yeah. Yes. However slight it ultimately is, and there's a video I took. This is probably the just the best video. It's so wholesome in its goodness. It was about a week and a half before my mom died. Maybe two weeks. Yeah, I have to look at it. But my mom's sitting in a chair in pain. But my sister is there. My, my brother is there. Their children are there. And it's a candid video of I just 
the house is open and there's children playing and there's uh, people coming in and visiting, sitting with my mom. And I just walk around the room looking at people and saying, hi, you know, say hi to the camera, say hi to the camera. And children are just running around and some, there were some Bowers there, there were some Myers there. And I shared that with people and they just would look at that and be like, whoa. That's not just a cheesy family. That's like, you see the pain there. Like my mom is dying. She puts on a good face, but you also see like an abiding joy at the same time. Like she's dying. She knows she's dying. She's in pain, but she's also like surrounded by her blessing. (laughs) Like if you had to go, that's, that's how. When you're on the tail end, you deserve that. Yeah. I deserve that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not even there yet, but I'm asserting that just <laughs> for the record. Okay, so we're talking about the stock response to death. Mm. Now let's talk about just just real briefly. We don't have to go into the deep dive on that. I promise you. The stop the stock response to pain. It's to be avoided at all costs. At all costs. It's to be deadened. All forms of pain. Healing is to be sought. God's plan for you is that you not experience suffering. Mm. Where's so, your reference for that one, Jared? <laughs> no, it's not. I'm, I'm speaking yeah. sarcastically, but that, that how much of that is coming? Well, yeah. at least how much of that was coming out in the last 20 years out of Big Eva, as we call it. Yeah. Some of how they deal with it is pretending it's not happening. Suffering is not happening. How is so-and-so? Keep praying for her. She's doing great. Instead of, she's in excruciating pain. She's in a very dark place. You need to do everything you can to to ease her suffering. But yes. you can't stop it. You can't stop it. You really can't. And suffering can also be seen as a companion who goes with you and helps you because it's... It's actually a companion who's teaching you something. Because otherwise, why would it be suffering? And that suffering, I believe, is uh, a means for us to grow and to learn and uh, to take us somewhere. Well, I, I agree with that. And then along with that, because I think these are related, right? Count it all joy. We've treated, yeah, when you encounter, yeah, suffering. count it all joy. What, I'm supposed to be excited kinds. when I suffer. Mm. Instead of, another one is, as I deal with uh, this trials, idea of sorry, sorrow. Trials. Yeah, well, suffering is, yeah. But sorrow, let's talk about sorrow for a second. Sorrow is not a word that's used very often, but it used to be. Mm. And so there's this song. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way and leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. It was originally a poem. I walked a mile with sorrow. Nary a word said she, but all the things I learned from her. Sorrow walked with me. Mm-hmm. And now people see someone walking with sorrow and they say, she's depressed. He's suffering from depression. Let's put them on medication. Hmm. 
That's the cultural norm. Yeah. yeah. Sorrow is an alien idea. Now we call it depression, like it's a mental illness. We've lumped so much into mental illness, like you're crazy because you're experiencing this. Yeah. Instead of you are now going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Hmm. And he ain't going to take no damn medication to deaden it, to even your highs and lows out. I was advised after Chelsea died to take medication and I declined. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, that's not to say I didn't struggle with suicidal thoughts and so on. But that wasn't depression, that was sorrow. Which is different and distinct from grief. Distinct in the same way the twins are distinct one from the other. So there's that. And then pleasure. Well, pleasure is not very fun if uh, it's free and clear all. Without any responsibility. Without, without any, any responsibility. The times I felt pleasure that abided and was like good and left me satisfied was had to work for it at the very least and if not had to experience pain and trials in order to get it and to go through it and it was just easy yeah and and he he references something sexual but i want to talk about something that i think is is distinctly american here food cheap pleasure in food Hmm. is becoming more and more pervasive Mm -hmm. perhaps i'm just awake to it and a lot of it has to do with the fact that people don't want to put in the work. It has nothing to do, has, has nothing to do with their palate even. Would you like a filet mignon? Yes. And go make one. Hmm. Mm, or I can have nachos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm in the nachos camp usually. Yeah. Until well, I got sick from all from, my food. From all your nachos. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this myself where I'm like, how do I change my diet when I get home? My wife does not want to, she doesn't want to. One of Janelle's great struggles is that she's impatient while making food and she wants to eat it while it's hot right now. Hmm. And it's, so if you're impatient, then you don't plan things so that everything is hot all at once. So she'll fix the peas and then they're cold. Then she'll fix this and then that's cold. And so it's three cold things on the table and now she's mad. She doesn't like it. She doesn't want to do it. I give up. I quit. Instead of, all right. Yeah, one of the things that I did when I was fasting a lot is I would dream about what I was going to eat. And then when it was time, no matter how hungry I was, I would spend two hours on preparation for this meal that I was going to break my fast on. And it was succulent. And I found that when I broke the fast, I went back to habits that are unhealthy, if not gluttony, at least unhealthy. So it's not sin per se. Those habits, I'm eating food that I kind of don't like. And I'm not spending the same amount of time on it now that I, like, we have these china sets from grandmothers that no one ever uses or uses once a year. Yeah. Maybe twice if you're one of those rare families who does it simultaneously at Christmas and Thanksgiving, right? Like, mm. Occasionally, there's three times because they're really into Easter, but those mostly are Catholics. Hmm. So now, we don't even have 
this meal thing that we do together where we're fixing something. They make plastic plates that look like China. They could yeah. be China plates now. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You got so that. we used to pull out all the stops and the whole, you know, family get together. But, but then at some point someone's like, I'll just make a Costco run and these plates just look easy. And now that's what we do at holidays typically. Because you don't want to inconvenience who? Myself. Well, yeah, I suppose the person who bought the plates. So, no, well, let me assert this real quick before I forget. I am asserting that men have advocated some things, abdicated some, some, some things in terms of the cultural norms and stock responses. And they've enabled their wives to do the same. Hmm. And now you're dealing with that. My wife goes to work instead of learning how to to cook. A, my wife couldn't cook a five course meal. She can't even do three. I would, it'd be a struggle for me. Right, there's this whole cultural thing around the pleasure of eating delicious food that we've swapped out. Now, if you're healthy, that has become code for unhappy in your dietary life because i just can't eat this garbage right yeah. so now i have to eat this stuff over here but i don't spend much time on it either like it's still american dietary habits are bizarre anyway mm. when poisons become fashionable they do not cease to kill they do not cease they to not kill, cease to kill. Mm. Uh, i will say i have a dear dear friend who is from romania in Romania culture, they don't have such strange uh, dietary habits. And they also have some really nice stock responses to death. You could attribute it to it's an old country that still understands its roots or whatever. I don't know. But when my mom passed away, she jumped into action and knew exactly what to do in the capacity that she could she could do as a dear friend mm. you know she came over and gave me good nutritious food that she prepared and left it with me didn't say much um stayed a little bit if i wished but then quickly um exited out her and her family and left me with delicious nutritious food and encouraged me to eat i lost a lot of weight when my mom died one day I lost like five or six pounds over a single day. And I, I don't even know how that happened. It was wild. Partly dehydration, clearly. Probably, yeah. But she's like, eat, drink, here, drink, eat, 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 eat. But the Americans in my life, a lot of them had not a clue of what to do with me. And she told me about how uh, funerals would happen quickly and like you had it, orthodoxy you had you know 24, 24 hours. hours to so they were to buried funeral within. arrangements and, and burial i felt like i had to reinvent this wheel called grief i you know i think you have to you have to take it and do what you have to do with it but i think maybe the culture can at least do some of that work for you and like you said, put up guardrails so you don't go flying off the edge. Because I did feel like I was going a thousand miles an hour at times. And it's like. Like, like, all right, Jim, within these boundaries, 
grieve. Grieve. But we're not trying to control that. But there are lines. You can't kill yourself. Yeah. Oh, here's a line for you. Yeah. That you would... don't get to kill yourself. That's that's out of that's out of the picture. Here's another one for you. If somebody would have literally said that, drugs. that would have been nice. But I honestly felt like, well, I was actually encouraged to do drugs. Don't do that. I, I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> no, no, I was encouraged. No, I, I, encouraged to smoke weed. I, no, I get that. I get that because what? What, what else? What? Man, I, here, here's the thing. We've been trained to only look for sweetness in everything, whereas bitterness is a flavor profile. Hmm. And so is, you know, something, I'm going to say sour, so is salty. So there's all these different ideas that we're, we need to be approaching this as, like there is an afterlife. And you confess with your heart, mouth and believe in your heart, or if you're a child, you go to heaven. That's our theology right now, period. That being the case, now you're walking through this just like your mom walked through it or my mom walked through it when her parents died, just like for generations exactly, immemorial. Exactly, exactly. And so now we're going to be going through this here. And, well, it shouldn't be about you, Jared. It should be about the person that passed on. I'm sorry, but the person that passed on is gone. <laughs> They're in such a place that I can't describe, I don't know, but it is so incomparable. And like you said, we're in the Shadowlands and I'd rather be with them. <laughs> it sounds I, yeah. pretty great. Yeah. Except for, I know that Jesus has me here now and has a purpose. So, gotta stick it out. But that's really exciting. There's a purpose. And what we do in here has lasting impact. It says, store your treasures in heaven. I have two great treasures in heaven. Well, I don't know if you can call people treasures, but they kind of feel like treasures because what do you like? I want to go, you know, be with them. If we're doing our work unto Jesus, we get wages for that. Yeah. If we can pull some people along with us and help them to get to heaven, that's going to be greater and better. And yeah, and as culture warriors, I mean, ultimately, that's what we're involved in is the build is is culture making, right? I think that we should be self aware in in our in first within our com families, which ultimately determines our communities. We need to be self-aware about, first of all, uh, how our family chooses to deal with grief. Mm. And then secondly, how we choose to relate to the families that are grieving. Mm. So I can't control what that family does, but I can control my the, the way that I choose to bless them. Yeah. Next time somebody uh, close dies, either in our family or in a family, like close, could we just give them some good stock responses and say, look, don't kill yourself. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs here. I'm going to don't listen to anybody that tells you to. Yeah. Or don't, thing. don't listen. You're going to be feeling a lot of things here. I'm bringing some food over and then I'm going to leave. <laughs> and if, and if you have to go to work because you need money, then we'll, we'll take up an offering here's, for here's you. Here's a thousand dollars. Here's a thousand dollars. Yeah. 
and if your work's saying you have to come to work or quit or or you'll get fired, then it's like, is that really a good job to be working at? I don't know. Yeah. And my my work didn't say that. No, they didn't say that. But but, uh, I really... But if you have that concern, then maybe you need to make a new career decision. uh, Because the thing about it is it's going to happen. Either you're going to go first and then... And then you still have to deal with the problem because the people you have left behind are going to have to have grief responses that are going to be in part dictated by culture. And so you should change the culture whether you experience it or not. Because what happens if like we do some work on the culture and like, guys, we're we're doing this so poorly. Like we could be doing this so much better. There were some motorcycle crashes that didn't need to happen. <laughs> there was some damage that didn't need to happen. Hmm. And in my part, I feel like there was some grief that I didn't want necessarily displayed out there and then some judgment passed on me because I'm acting strange. Well, I am judging you, for better or worse. For better or for worse. You know, (laughs) although, to be fair, you were like, I was really glad that you came around um, shortly after my mom died. All right, I'm going to pray. Let's... Mona Lisa, is there anything else? No, prayer sounds great. God, I ask you, please have mercy on us for our sin. And while we're on this earth, I ask that you, please enable us to make culture instead of being a victim of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Try that again. What's good about being in the 1985 club on Patreon? Uh, I can't tell you that, but it's pretty cool. Why? Why would I? Why can't you tell me? It's because I'm afraid that you'll join and I don't think you can afford it. You're a ding dong. You know that? (laughs) Why? Because I gave the right answer? No, because you're so far behind times. I don't (laughs) even know what's going on. The old fogey. When was, the last crusty time, old salt when was the last time you even logged on to the internet? Mm, what's the internet? All right, look. Um.